You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. It doesn't take much digging online to find articles written by social conservatives and uh, right-wing fundamentalist evangelical batshit Christians uh, attacking me for the threat that I allegedly pose to the institution of marriage. Uh, and, and all married gay people also pose the institution of marriage because we are less likely, we gay couples, to be strictly monogamous, less successfully monogamous. They often say, I would say we are more successfully non-monogamous, particularly when we are non-monogamous in our long-term relationships and they work and we stay together and we are non-monogamous. But I'm a big threat to the sacred institution of marriage uh, because I sometimes talk about non-monogamy because you can listen to this show and hear from people who are not necessarily monogamous and their relationships are working for them. But also uh, frequently I'm attacked uh, by religious conservatives, social conservatives because of kink, because I will write about non-normative, uh, non-penis and vagina desires even in the context of a committed relationship and encourage people um, – Say it with me if you're a long-term listener of the show. Encourage people to be GGG, to be understanding, maybe to step outside their comfort zones to accommodate and indulge a partner, not to step into a trauma zone to accommodate or indulge a partner, but to, you know, maybe go there, uh, maybe expand your sexual repertoire. And the science eventually caught up with me and showed that people who went on sexual journeys uh, and were GGG actually reported greater levels of relationship satisfaction over the long term, not just the person being indulged in whatever it was that turned them on. But the person who was doing the indulging, they reported higher levels of relationship satisfaction, sexual transformations. That was what the study was of. People who had transformed themselves sexually for a partner. It wasn't just the partner who was delighted and happy in the relationship, but the transformer in the relationship, the optimist prime piece of ass that did the transformation. And it seems to me that encouraging people to meet each other's needs, encouraging people to be GGG, encouraging people to have a passionate uh, love life in which they err on the side of meeting each other's needs, and that's a mutual two-way street, is to support and defend and to strengthen marriage uh, because a lot of marriages are derailed by sexual dissatisfaction, by resentment, by frustrated desires, by unmet needs, and then people going outside the relationship to get those needs met, and that can often lead to a big explosion. You know, an affair comes out or somebody went to a sex worker for a little foot worship or whatever it is that they couldn't get at home or couldn't bring themselves to ask for or, or had asked for and been rejected, uh, you know, or called a freak or whatever, um, you know, that comes out and that can end a relationship. So this is all coming tumbling out of me because of something that happened to me in the Salt Lake City airport this week where I did not expect to meet a Republican, conservative, uh, straight, white, big guy from Texas who loves me. Usually conservative, Republican, straight, white, Texan, big guy. Uh, that doesn't go together with fan of Dan Savage. That's rare. I did not expect that. When this big guy came up to me, not wearing a cowboy hat, but when I think back on it, he's kind of wearing a cowboy hat in my imagination, and introduced himself, I was expecting to get bitched out for something I'd done or said or, you know, some speech I gave. And he pulled me aside and said, I, there was a letter of mine in your column. There was a letter of mine in your column. And, and I, you know, and I thanked you, but I just saw you here in the airport and chased you down so I could thank you personally. 
and chase me down, he did. I get the occasional death threat. Nothing to wet my pants over. Quentin Crisp said uh, he's a famous, very effeminate, flamboyant gay man, uh, sort of a public figure, public intellectual of sorts in New York City in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, and he was in the phone book and people would call him up when they'd see him on Dick Cavett and leave death threats for him because he was so effeminate. And it really is the gender nonconformers that draw the most ire and draw the most violence. And he was certainly gender nonconforming. And he would point out that people are going to kill you. They show up and kill you. They don't ring you up. The people who are ringing you up are trying to ruin your day. So I get the occasional death threat. I don't let it ruin my day, right? Just like Quentin Crisp did. He's my role model for processing death threats. But I do get them. So I'm a little like nervous when – you know, someone chases me down on a street or in an airport and grabs me from behind. Uh, it's been around with sort of a fight or flight response. Like, holy fuck, it's on. And this guy did that. He like chased me through the terminal and grabbed me by the shoulder. So I heard somebody running up behind me and then they, there was a hand on me. And I sort of spun around like, holy fuck. There's this big guy from Texas. Oh, I'm a fan. I, I wrote a, call, a letter to you once long ago. It was in your column and I just saw you in the airport and I had to chase you down. To thank you in person for saving my marriage. That's what I did for him. I saved his marriage. Maybe some of you uh, who also read the column might remember this letter. It was from a guy who said that he was into ball busting and he couldn't bring himself to tell the wife. Uh, she wasn't particularly kinky or interested in kinks. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with ball busting, it's guys who like to get kicked in the balls or kneed in the balls. Uh, there are risks there. Have your kids first before you really go full haul hog uh, on the ball busting thing or freeze some sperm and file it away. And his wife found out that he'd gone to see a sex worker for a little uh, ball busting. She was going to divorce him. She was talking to a lawyer and a friend of his wife's somehow in deep in the heart of Texas who was familiar with Savage Love told her to go read my archives before she did that and sent her to a GGG column and she read it. And they had a little detente. And he wrote to say in this column, thank you. Not only were we then able to talk about kink, not only was my wife then able to forgive me uh, for what I had done, but now we have incorporated ball busting into our relationship. That she now busts his balls. And that's how he wanted it all along. Given his druthers, he would rather be kicked in the crotch by the woman he loves than by the woman he rented. And so this guy, you know, in the airport, Shaking my hand and giving me like this weird ass bear hug, thanking me. And all bear hugs are weird, not just because it was this guy, a big Texan straight guy giving me a hug. All bear hugs freak me out. Uh, giving me a bear hug in the airport, thanking me for saving his marriage because I was able to open his wife's eyes in a way to how Kink could improve their relationship, how incorporating it, how indulging each other, how being compassionate and understanding about it could actually – Bring them closer together that rather than seeing his kink as a problem and something weird uh, and something that must be eradicated or controlled or that's something that he has to be dumped for, that this is something that they can share. And why wouldn't she want to kick him in the balls if she was angry at him for seeing a prostitute? Seems like a win-win-win right there. And it was. And as he said in the letter so long ago, when they began to open up to each other about his kinks, suddenly some of her own came to the surface. So I am not – a danger, I think, to marriage. There's at least one marriage that I saved and there are probably others, I hope, I think, maybe so. And I am not, again, for the record, anti-marriage, anti-traditional marriage. There's a traditional marriage, traditional straight, white, Texan, Republican marriage that I saved. And you know what? I think people are likelier to stay together if their attitude towards non-normative desires is forgiving, compassionate, 
indulgent, not phobic, not paranoid, not judgy, but pleasure-seeking, fun-seeking, joy-seeking. Again, I don't think people have to go to places that leave them traumatized. You don't have to indulge your partner in things that are libido killers for you. But many fewer things are actually libido killers if you think about it for a minute. I'm sure if this woman who loves her husband so much, she still kicks him in the balls to this day, so however many years after this column appeared, as he told me in the airport. I'm sure this woman, if she'd known at the outset that he was into this, wouldn't have been into him at all. But as it came out, she loved him. Came out in a messy, awkward, uncomfortable way, but it came out. And she could go there. She could get there for him. And I'm glad she did. I'm glad they're still together. So, big Texan guy in the airport, thank you for the thank you. Thank you for the hug. Uh, and you're welcome. I didn't save your marriage. You guys saved your marriage. I maybe opened your wife's eyes a little bit and yours. And hopefully you guys are in a better place now, in a more honest place. But you guys got there on your own. So you don't have to thank me. You guys did the work. But I'm glad I could help. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a married straight woman in my mid-30s living in the Southeast. My husband and I have a great relationship, but we're having an issue with our sex life that I just don't know how to fix. It's a problem for me, but I don't think he sees it as a problem. The issue started a few years ago when I was pregnant and just was not up for sex because I was really nauseated or uncomfortable and just had no interest. I understood that my husband's libido was still there, so I tried to appease him with hand jobs and blow jobs and helping him masturbate, etc. This continued well after our baby was born, too. It's not something I enjoyed, but I felt like he deserved some sort of sexual attention from me, and I figured once I was feeling back to my old self, our sex life would pick up where we left off. However, it's now a few years later, and he still enjoys this, and I'd say he requests this kind of interaction more than actual sex. I've gone through various emotions, feeling rejected, annoyed, grossed out, resentful. In a time when I was just reemerging as a sexual being, I felt like I really needed him to help me through that transition and help me feel confident and desired. So I was pretty deflated when he still seemed to want this fantasy, including porn and jerking off to other women really often. His favorite thing is to fantasize that he and I are having a threesome with another woman, preferably somebody we know so that it's more realistic. We look at pictures of celebrities who resemble friends of ours or ex-coworkers of his. It's never a person that we're especially close with because we think he realizes that would cross a line for me. And we pretty much just look at celebrities that I know he'd prefer looking at photos of the actual people that he's fantasizing about on Facebook or whatever. And I really don't begrudge him these fantasies, um, you know, and plus the sweet thing about it is that he does want me to be involved and his fantasies include me, which I should feel honored about. I just, don't really want to have to participate in them because it turns me off and makes me feel insecure. When I've tried talking to him about it and saying that I don't really enjoy it, I'd rather he just masturbate on his own, he gets really upset like I'm shaming him. Lately, I just feel kind of numb to it and resign that this is the way it is. Is this a common occurrence for guys to want their partners to help them masturbate? He does masturbate on his own sometimes, but he much prefers it when I'm involved and acting really into it, and coming up with scenarios, talking about what women I want to fuck, which is a total act for me since it actually grosses me out. The whole process often takes upwards of an hour, which is a pretty big chunk of our alone awake time together in the evening, and he wants to do this at least a couple times a week. We have sex too, and it's usually good, but I just feel like things are way out of balance. What should I do? Thanks, Dan. You've created a monster. 
a whiny, selfish, entitled baby man monster. I'm not blaming you for this. You did what a lot of people do during pregnancy uh, when you were very low libido and you tidied him over with a few hand jobs and some dirty talk. And you are to be commended for that. Not everybody uh, when they're pregnant has the energy to so indulge their, their male partners. And you indulged him. You kept his not strained. Good for you. But now you need to cut him the fuck off. If half your sex life is something that turns you off, that you do not enjoy, if half your sex life is some sort of bizarre command performance for the king of fucking assholery, there's a problem. And it's not about shaming him. You know, sex positive people are sometimes uh, terrorized by this word shame. Oh, you're shaming me about X. No, I'm not shaming you about X. X is your thing and I honor your things and you should enjoy your things. But when your things – not just I'm indifferent to, I could take or leave, but when your things actively turn me off, when they're libido killers for me, when they make me feel sad and depressed and degraded and not in a sexy way, some people dig degradation, after it's not about shame. It's not about something I'm doing to you. It's about something you're doing to me. You are selfishly requiring me to indulge you in this way that makes me feel diminished and disrespected and not in a sexy way, to avoid shaming you? Bullshit. This is over. This is done. I am happy. Uh, you know, if I were in your shoes, maybe this is something I could do for my partner once in a great while. Not my thing, but you want to spin out a dirty talk fantasy about a three-way involving a friend of ours that doesn't really turn me on, and I can put myself on auto dirty pilot and talk you through it and watch you jack off or help you jack off, whatever. But for it to be half of what I'm required to do? No. No, half of what I'm asked to do? No, half of what I am double backflip reverse psychology shamed into doing? He's shaming you into doing this by accusing you of shaming him. Bullshit, it's over the end. He's entitled to his own private fantasy life. He's entitled to his own private things. He can't draft you into participating in things that leave you feeling this way. I just need to lay that out. We have a sex life. If you're up for a three-way at some time, you're up for realizing this fantasy, throw that on the table if you're up for it. If you're not, just say this is always going to be within the realm of fantasy, darling. Uh, and this doesn't involve me and it doesn't turn me on. And I'm just not going to have it be 50% of my sex life anymore. Maybe 5%. Maybe once every 20-ish times that we have sex that we both enjoy. And let's keep things interesting. Let's keep things varied. Let's make sure we're sharing fantasies that beyond this one so we can find some that we both share that both turn us on. But this thing, your thing – you're going to have to enjoy that alone most of the time. Every once in a great while, I will jump in when I'm feeling it. And you're likelier to jump in and participate in this fantasy scenario in a masturbatory assistant way uh, when you're, you're feeling grateful because most of your sex life is mutually pleasurable and, and uh, affirms who you are sexually. You would probably be down for doing this once in a great while, down for enjoying the fantasy that he enjoys so much and going there for him and being GGG about it every once in a great while. But 50 fucking percent of the time, no, it is over. And when he shames you about it by accusing you of shaming him, shame him right the fuck back. This isn't about me shaming you. This is about you using me. I am not a walking, talking, sentient fleshlight. Period. The end. Hey, Dan, uh, 40-year-old straight male from mid-America. My problem is that uh, my wife I've been with for 10 years, uh, married for seven, doesn't really have a sex drive. Uh, we have sex 
two, three times a month, and uh, recently I had a talk about it, uh, just about maybe doing it a little more often, but she's telling me during that that some of the times that we do have sex, she's only doing it because she feels like it's her wifely duty to me, which, of course, made me feel pretty terrible. Makes me think that either I'm not pleasing her and that I should feel a little bit uh, of a rapey, I guess, because I feel like she feels like she's being forced into doing something she doesn't want to do. And that's certainly not what I want. I don't. She doesn't owe me anything. And I don't want her to have to do something she doesn't want to. The reason she says she has no sex drive is because she's overweight, insecure about her body. Uh, she's been on antidepressants for years. She works a high-stress job, and we've got uh, two small kids. So all that combined pretty much doesn't leave her with any energy or time or desire for sex. And she also doesn't really seem to have any sexual fantasies. Uh, she's been pretty open to fulfilling mine, and uh, it's been great. But uh, in the 10 years we've been together, she's never told me any of her fantasies, ever. I've asked numerous times, and I'm open-minded enough, I would like to do something, you know, anything she wants to do, I'd love to do it for her, but uh, anytime I ask, she either tells me she can't think of anything, or that she'll get back to me, and then she never does. So really, my question's twofold here. It's, uh, is it possible for someone not to have the sex drive, and not to have any fantasies? And is there also, is there anything that can be done just to help her libido? There's a couple of things you can do that might kick your wife's libido back into gear. Uh, or they might not. Your wife could be a naturally low libido person. Uh, she could be you know, somewhere on the asexual spectrum and close to the non-sexual end of it. Or she could be somewhere along the asexual spectrum. Uh, and so nothing you can do will fix this. But the things that leap out from your call are the things that you identify as potential problems. Two small children, high-stress job, antidepressants. Antidepressants can crater people's libidos. If your wife isn't interested in sex and would rather not be having sex, she doesn't have a lot of incentive to go to her doctor and ask him to shake up her antidepressant medications in hopes of reviving her interest in sex. So you can only importune her to do that. You can say to her, it's commonly known that antidepressants have a side effect of killing and cratering people's libidos and ability to climax sometimes. So if she wants to want to have sex, she should talk to her doctor. The other issues, you know, the pressures of two small children, overweight. Well, the kid front, you know, you really, when you have two small children, you're signing up for some years initially of shitty sex, of infrequent and not very necessarily passionate or elaborate or prolonged uh, sexual activity because of the time pressures and the stress and the exhaustion that comes with two small children, which are really a relay race. I think two small children are 10 times more work than one small child because when it's one small child, one person can be off every once in a while. When it's two kids, somebody's always on. Everybody's always exhausted. The overweight thing, you know, change your diet, change your exercise routines, make time for it. I'm telling you to make time for exercise when you hardly have time for sex and you're doing the relay race of two kids. This is a problem that may in the end work itself out that as the kids get older and they're less demanding, uh, fewer time pressures, uh, as your wife moves up the ladder at work, maybe she'll have more help and her stressful job will become a little less stressful. And who knows? Maybe her libido will kick into gear. Or maybe it won't. 
this is once again me being required to sort of tinker with the machinery of monogamy. Ultimately, the problem here in your relationship may not be solvable within your relationship. You want to have sex. You want to have sex with somebody who wants to have sex. To your credit, you don't want to feel like you're raping your wife who's having sex against her will just to appease and mollify you. And the solution, if people were I think a little more rational and reasonable about this, could be you having sex with other people who are interested in having sex with you and not asking your wife to do this thing for you that she clearly doesn't want to do. But so many married people, so many people with children would regard it as deeply threatening. She would rather pretend to want to have sex than allow you to have sex with other people. And that's something I can't really wrap my head around. You know, maybe I have, maybe I'm missing a chromosome or something. I can't see why someone would want someone to do with them this thing that they don't want to do rather than giving that person permission to do that thing with other people. Yes, it could lead to an emotional entanglement, but a complete lack of sex or nothing but bad sex can lead to an emotional estrangement that could as easily lead to divorce as an emotional entanglement with an outside sex partner. I don't think anything I'm saying is providing you with a whole lot of comfort. Jack off a lot. Let the kids get older. See if that helps. Work on diet and exercise without body shaming your wife about it. Just because exercise, whatever your size, does make you feel better. Exercise does make you hornier. Exercise is a natural antidepressant. <laughs> and one of the tech savvy at risk youth just prompted me to recommend something that I actually do think works when it comes to freeing up someone's libido, dislodging fantasies that they may be afraid to share. Smoke some fucking pot. If your wife isn't drug tested at her high stress job, if you're not drug tested at yours, smoke some fucking pot. Not with the like, let's get high and fuck, 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 but let's get high and like lay around and talk and share as we are spaced out and stoned and be intimate and touch and just see where it goes. Pot is very freeing. Pot diminishes inhibitions and pot when you are the parent of a small child makes you a better parent when used in moderation. But ultimately, you may have to face up to, you know, you may do all of these things and nothing may change. Your wife could, again, just be low libido or asexual. And if nothing changes, then you need to ask yourself what accommodation you would require to stay in this marriage and stay happy in this marriage. And you may find yourself in the position that many married people are in when they have partners who will not even have a conversation about openness or monogamish. You may have to do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. And we all know what that is. Hi, Dan. I'm a 60-year-old, happily gay man in New York City. And I wanted to ask you a question about something that has been a recurring phenomenon in my life ever since I came out at the age of 18. And it even persists to this day. Over the years, there have been many, many men who have declared their romantic love for me. The problem is that they have all been straight. No matter what country I've lived in, whether it's been the United States, Sweden, Germany, Italy, etc. Straight men have declared their love for me in ways that gay men never have. This is all times included wild and passionate kissing and sometimes even a sexual relationship. I'm not an effeminate guy, so I don't get it. I'm kind of tall and kind of masculine. Is this some phenomenon that you've heard of before? I just don't get it. Perhaps you can shed some light on this thing that has been happening in my life for such a long time. I've never really heard of this before, but I have a theory. You know, male-male intimacy, uh, romantic friendship, even love between straight guys 
kind of got problematic, kind of got stigmatized after gay men began to come out en masse after Stonewall. You know, if you were too affectionate, if you were physically affectionate with another man, people would think that you were gay. And a lot of straight guys didn't want people to think that they were gay. So things that had been really normative in uh, heterosexual male relationships between, you know, between straight men for decades, for centuries, suddenly became stigmatized and problematic, like I just said. You know, you look at pictures of uh, men on troop ships uh, from the Second World War and everybody's on the deck of this troop ship and guys are laying around, they're laying on each other, their heads are in each other's laps. That stopped happening after Stonewall. That stopped happening after male-male touch, intimacy, romantic friendship, intimacy, love, expressions of, uh, defaulted to meaning that you were queer. So I believe and I've seen in the lives of a lot of my straight friends and I hear from uh, straight people with Savage Love and here on the Lovecast, straight guys, that more and more straight guys are secure enough in their sexuality and not so terrified of being perceived to be gay momentarily by somebody else uh, that they're no longer so hyper about this, that, that there's now this ease of uh, touch, this ease of you know expressions of affection um, that for the last few decades were not so easy, not so easily expressed. So what's going on with you? I don't know. But I suspect that what you're hearing from these guys are things that they may feel for other guys in their lives too, that they you know, they love them. They love them as friends. Hey, man, I love you. But they have a harder time expressing that to their heterosexual male friends for fear that their heterosexual male friends will think that they're faggots uh, or anybody in your shelter under a faggot. But they have an easier time expressing it to you because you are a faggot, Right. So they can tell you that they love you. They can tell you that they have this, these bromantic feelings for you safely, that you're, you're not somebody who's going to necessarily take that the wrong way or be panicked by it or terrified to be on the receiving end of that kind of male-male platonic intimacy and affection. That's my theory. Hi there. I am a 29-year-old from Alaska, and I'm going through this. I guess break up, but I'm feeling very conflicted about it. Um, I met this guy who I share a lot of interest in. We both want to like homestead and live off the land and all of that and kind of jumped into this relationship. And uh, also I have herpes and that's something that he was okay with. Um, but as we've been together, I've noticing that we have things not in common. He wants to have a kid. I don't want to have a kid. I'm very social. He's very jealous. And, you know, I was thinking about ending the relationship. I feel like maybe we don't, like, we can't work it out. He says maybe we should get counseling. I'm thinking we're a year into this and we need counseling already. That doesn't bode very well. But, you know, in a small community, I feel like, should I just feel lucky that I found someone who wants to be with me? I am attracted to him. We have great sex. You know, I don't know if I should just feel grateful that I found someone and just buck up and get over all these other things, you know, is it better to just be alone or I, I don't know. Uh, you have a successful relationship. How miserable is acceptable? There are two issues here that you guys need to resolve before you can make a lifelong commitment to each other and living off the land and homesteading, whatever that means. I'm a city kid. I don't know what that means exactly. First, his jealousy. You're social and you're outgoing and if he's going to choose to be with you, the price of admission he has to pay is getting the fuck over that because that is some bad shit and it's potentially violent shit and he needs to 
unpack that perhaps with a counselor. You say you've been together a year. I would tend to agree. You know, I, I meet people who've been together three months, six months who say they're in couples counseling and I always think you should just pull the fucking plug. Like if it's three or six months you need an intervention, I don't think you're destined to be together forever. But to go to counseling uh, and see a counselor who can help him get to the root of the jealousy uh, and what that means and the, the controlling shit around your social outgoing nature and, and learn to trust and learn to regard you as his female partner and not his female property and you are allowed as his female partner to have interactions with and friendships with and relationships, although non-sexual, with other men uh, could be really beneficial, could make him a man that you could actually be with and live with for the rest of your life. The other issue though is kids and you know there's really no half a loaf when it comes to kids. You can't have half a kid. Uh, you either have kids or you don't have kids and one of you is going to pay the price of admission there. One of you is going to lose. Uh, you, you are either going to agree to have kids to be with him. That's the price of admission you're going to pay or he's going to agree to not have kids or you're both going to agree to stay together for now and then see if one or the other of you doesn't change. Your position doesn't change. There's a lot of people in their 20s who say they don't want kids who have kids in their 30s or their 40s and are happy to have done it then. Sometimes when people say, I don't want kids, what they mean is I don't want kids right fucking now, but they may change. Your feeling about having children may change or it may not. And that too is something that you should perhaps talk over with a counselor. Price of admission for him, getting over the jealousy issue. A price of admission that will also have to be paid, one or the other of you is going to have to compromise on the kid issue. And by compromise, I mean lose. I've been seeing this guy for three weeks now. And I've been wanting to further things. I lost my virginity to him. And he's he works a lot. He works about 50 hours a week. He seems like he doesn't really have time for me. And But he says that things will ease up and that he'll have more time. All my friends are kind of telling me that he should walk away. Uh, they said they don't really get good vibes. But I just can't. Like I'm just so emotionally attached. And it's still so early. But I don't know if I should walk away. I think you should stay perfectly still. You don't have to walk away. You don't have to make a move because you have been walked away from, right? This guy isn't making time for you right now. Uh, that could be because he's so busy working 50 hours a week, which is not that busy. I say, because I work 90 hours a week, uh, I wouldn't call 50 hours a week busy. I would call that fucking vacation. Um, he's not making time for you right now. So either he, you know, got with you and was interested in you and realized he wasn't that interested in you and he's trying to let you down easy by blaming work uh, for the reason he can't see you or spend much time with you or that's really legitimately the reason. He's just too busy, just super stressed out at work and doesn't have time for romance or sex at the moment. In which case, if you stay perfectly still and he has walked away from you, if he's walking away from you because he's not interested, he's not coming back and there's nothing you can do about it. If it is work, he will circle back. He will come back to you when his life settles down. Uh, and then there you will be in the same spot that you were when he walked away from you unless you have met somebody else in the interim. Also, you're young. You're inexperienced. Uh, you were a virgin until three weeks ago. You don't say how old you are. Did he? You don't say how old you are, but you sound young. And here's a little advice. When you're young and when somebody fucks you for the first time or you have sex with somebody the first time, you can, you know, have those blinders on. Love is blind. You do need to rely on your friends. You do need 
that outside perspective uh, to help you be more discerning, to help train that muscle to like be able to be infatuated with somebody into somebody but also scrutinizing them objectively. That's a difficult thing to do at the same time when you're young. It's a difficult thing to do at the same time when you're old, when you've just met somebody and you're infatuated. And so for that person to have met your friends and for your friends, all your friends unanimously to be saying, yeah, he gives us a bad vibe. Your friends may very well be right about him. And you need to set aside the orgasm that you had with this guy. You need to set aside the sex, set aside the romance, set aside the life together with him that you have fantasized about. There's nothing wrong with that. I I could never have a one night stand in my whole life with somebody I couldn't see myself with. So sometimes I meet somebody in a bar and see myself with them for the rest of our lives and we go have sex and I'd never see that person again. That's not a bad thing that you were fantasizing about a life with him three weeks ago. You need to set that all aside and try to see him objectively. Try to view him through your friend's eyes because they are not infatuated, because they are not in love, because they are not fantasizing about a life with this man and they may see him more clearly than you do. Every advice columnist, everybody who has a show like this likes to pretend that they are the only advice columnist in the world and that is not true. There is a huge advice industrial complex out there, I like to call it. Many advice columnists, many advice podcasters uh, and we like to invite them on the show every once in a while for a newish segment, the second installment of what we're calling Second Opinion. We have other advice columnists on to take a couple of questions with me. So joining me today by phone, Amy Dickinson. She writes the syndicated Ask Amy advice column. She's appeared on the Today Show and Good Morning America. She had a long career in news before she became the Chicago Tribune's advice columnist in 2003 after the death of Ann Landers. And if you're an NPR fan, you can hear her regularly on the NPR News Quiz. Wait, wait, don't tell me where she is a panelist. Amy, thanks so much for uh, coming on Second Opinion. Thanks, Dan. So, Amy, this is a question I get all the time uh, before we take the questions from callers. I just wanted to know what you tell people. I'm always asked by people who want to be advice columnists how you get an advice columnist gig. Right. Well, in your case, I mean, you really invented your own your own thing. Um, but I had to actually kill a legend in order to do <laughs> You killed Ann Landers with your I did. Bare hands? I, well, you know, she was old, so no. <laughs> so my case is a little is a little different from yours in that the Tribune after Ann Landers' death, and she she literally like died at her typewriter. Um, there was no sort of succession plan in place. Her only plan was to have her column go with her, mm-hmm. I, I believe. So they, the Tribune launched a search, like a nationwide search. This is when you cue the Busby Berkeley montage of middle-aged women at typewriters. So they, <laughs> they did a, you know, a national search, and they basically put the word out that they were looking for the new Ann Landers or another Ann Landers or the next. Um, and I tried out. I tried out with a bunch of other people. And, um, and you got picked. It was funny, Dan, because they gave us all, there were probably 10 finalists, like serious finalists, and they gave us all five old Ann Landers questions to answer. And they gave us a week. Now, can you imagine taking a whole week <laughs> to write a column? I mean, really. So, and I'm I'm an old hack. So, I turned it around in in a few hours and sent it back. And but from that day on, I thought to myself, "Wow, this is a really great fit for me." Mm-hmm. I just from the start, I felt like, "Oh, I can totally do this." 
and it's been 11 years. Now, before I ask you this question, I'm just going to admit, I have no qualifications whatsoever. The only, qual- the only qualification you need to give advice is some asshole asked you for it, is some fool right. asked you for it. Because you look up advice in the dictionary, I'm always telling people, it says opinion about what could or should be done. Everybody can be an advice columnist. Do you ever get that? People saying, you have no qualifications. Oh, all the time. And I... Yes, I, I absolutely, the only qualification I have is that I, like, live on the planet and I've been paying attention. <laughs> and I do think that I have, as you do, a, a more than normal, you know, amount of interest in behavior and and human beings and how we operate. Mm. And so, yeah, no, I, and it's funny because I think there's a real tradition, actually, of amateurs, in quotes, writing advice columns. This goes way, way back to the agony ads, you mm-hmm. know? In the Yiddish papers in New York City yeah. in, in yeah. the 19th century. That's where the, the whole genre got its start. Yeah. Um, you had a column go viral about a year and a half ago uh, that was just genius, where a mom wrote you because her son, or it was the son or the mom who wrote you? You know, you must know the one I'm referring to. Dan, I do know the one you're referring to, and... <laughs> Actually, it was a dad who wrote to me. It's interesting to me. Everyone assumes that this letter was written by a mother, but I happen to know Ah. it was written by a father. And the question was, it was great because it was real short. And um, it was, uh, he had a 19-year-old son who's gay. And this was a church-going man who found it very embarrassing to have a gay son. And then he served up, you know, the ultimate softball in a way. He said he won't stop being gay. How can I get him to stop being gay? And it just hit me. After years of answering a version of this question, it was the way he put it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I have an idea. Why don't you stop being straight? And then, like, do that for a year or so, and then you can show him how easy it is. And I guess it was just the simplicity of that answer really, really hit people. It took yeah. off. It was it was genius. It really harkened back to a famous old column of uh, Abigail Van Buren's where somebody complained about a gay couple moving into the neighborhood in the 60s or 50s and asked what she could do to improve the quality of the neighborhood. And Abby's advice for her was you could move. Exactly. Yeah, I want to, you know, all props to you in that column. I love that column. I shared it with a, with a bunch of people. I tweeted it out. Um, I had been giving similar advice for a long time when people, whenever anyone would argue that being gay is a choice, I would look at them and say, great, choose it. Suck my dick. <laughs> Be- because it really comes down to that. Like you think there's yeah. a switch you can flip in your head that makes you gay, that that's a conscious mm-hmm. choice, a decision you can make. You can win the argument because everyone who's gay would argue that that's not the case. But you can win that argument by showing us how that's done, by choosing it yourself. Right. But you you and, really nailed it with that column. It was totally genius. Oh, thank you. Well, and God knows my life would be so much easier if I could be a lesbian. I swear to God. <laughs> and way back when I was a single mom, I had this little young daughter and all of my friends were lesbians. And, and I remember uh, going on a road trip with two or three friends of mine and talking to them about that. And I was like, you know, if it didn't really sort of disgust me at a very core level, <laughs> I would, my life would be so much better. 
And you, you know, know, on the from the gay side, sometimes my reaction is like, I'm just so glad I'm gay. Like there are times I'm with my my husband or something's happening, something's going down that wouldn't be happening if we weren't gay. And we look at each other and go, This is not an experience we would be enjoying right now if we were a straight married couple. Yeah, no, I I got it. Like in a way, we have to acknowledge you and I, we get letters from men, we get letters from women. So much of the mail is about this conflict between sort of the way women are wired and the way men are wired and they're not really perfectly compatible. And when you talk about men and women, there's going to be, you know, hundreds of millions of exceptions because there's billions of men, billions of women. But in some ways, like this is this cruel cosmic joke that really women are better off together and men are better off together. But but most of you are cursed to be straight. That's exactly what I was talking about with my friends. We're on this road trip. I had this little kid. They were like really great about it. We wanted to stop all the time and eat. You know, it was just like, oh, it was just so much easier to be with women and to like live with women. I don't know. I'm, I'm, it is a curse. But you just, you know, you're like me. You you can't live without the dick. Exactly. I blush. You know, like, I, I don't know. It's like, I still blush with this, but yeah. It's true. Like, like we could form a support group. Advice columnists uh, who can't live without dick. Me and Amy. Right. <laughs> uh, would you like we hang out and take a couple questions with me? Give the sure, second opinion yeah. we don't have very often that my, my listeners need because, you know, I'm not the only one with an opinion. Lots of people out there with opinion. So here we go. Let's play that first question for Amy. Hi, Dan. I am a 26-year-old female living in San Francisco Bay Area. And I have a question about kind of some family stuff that's going on. My uncle married a woman a couple of years ago, and they've gotten really close, of course, because they got married. But our relationship has really gone downhill. And I had <clears throat> sat down and spoke to him about that several times that, you know, we used to have this really close relationship, and I'm very happy that you have gotten married and you've found somebody to share your life with, but I feel like I never see you anymore. And when I do see you, it's on very borrowed time. You're always rushing off to get somewhere. And he acknowledged that. And I had my graduation come up and the whole time he said he was going to be there. The wife said she was going to be there. And then as the day grew closer, the wife decided that she had um, other things she had to take care of. And then he decided that he was just too busy to come to the whole thing. Really, all he could do was show up for the ceremony, and then he would leave. And for me, that was really upsetting because I had already discussed with him several times about how I felt like our relationship was kind of falling to the wayside and that I never got to see him anymore or talk to him. And when he showed up to my graduation, you know, all he talked about is how he couldn't day. He had to go. I didn't even get a photo with him and he left. And it's just very painful for me that kind of like, I felt like I was being rejected. And so a couple weeks later, when I tried to talk to him about it, he started going off on how, like, don't ask me to choose between me and my wife because I'm not going to choose you. And, And I told him that I'm not asking you to choose. I'm just asking to have some kind of priority in your life where we can still have a relationship and that I feel like I just don't see you. And he's like, well, I'll make it up to you. And I said, well, can you just have a day that we spend together one day that you don't have to do anything else? And it's been four months and I haven't heard 
anything from him. And so my dilemma is, is that his birthday is in a couple of weeks and his stepdaughter is also having a baby shower. And I just, and I would see him at the baby shower. And I just don't know if I should keep trying to have this relationship with him or if I should take a back seat. I don't know because every time I think about it, like it hurts me and I don't, I don't want to keep getting hurt by it. So Amy, this relationship, this adult woman has with her uncle seems a little intense. Well, first of all, it's not uncommon for people to freak out when a relationship changes, right? And so it's sort of like she's acting out like a toddler. And she has every right to ask her uncle to behave the way she wants him to behave. And I'm sure he's copped to her creepiness. And he's basically wisely, I think, creating a boundary. Mm-hmm. I found her, the tone, very extremely immature and a slightly disturbing, actually. Now, I was listening to the call, and I had sort of the same reaction. I have, I don't know, 12, 16 uncles. I lose count. Irish Catholic families, 10 million uncles. And divorce and remarriage are probably 12 million uncles at this point. I don't have my uncle's phone numbers. Exactly. I I wouldn't call, you know, I'm sure I could get them. I have aunt's phone numbers. Typically, you know, women tend to maintain those sort of ties. I can call my Aunt Peggy in a minute and get all of my uncle's phone numbers. But I I don't, you know, I wouldn't call my uncle and say, let's spend the day together. And if (laughs) if my uncle called me and said, Danny, it's been too long. Let's spend the day together. I'd be like, what the fuck is going on? No, I I mean, I can't get my nieces or nephews to return my call. So this (laughs) is it. And I feel like I come from a a super close family. So there, and her jealousy over the remarriage. Well, let's, let's give her the benefit of the doubt for a second. Let's, let's say that, you know, he's the only uncle. Maybe she had a a single mom too. And the uncle was sort of a father figure and they did have a much more intense relationship than someone like I would have who had just this surplus of uncles uh, with her uncle. And, you know, what if the new wife, you know, in some way he's not coming to the graduation, he's not seeing his niece because, you know, sometimes people marry people who isolate them from their families and their connections because they're jealous and controlling and insecure. Is that a possibility? I think it's a possibility. But, again, you can ask someone to work with you to, like, refine and refresh your relationship. But if the person doesn't want to, A, the person can't. B, the person won't. Mm-hmm. See, the person just doesn't want to, and you ha- you you simply have no choice but to respect it. You and, have to, and you can be the if you think your uncle's being immature or selfish or weird, you can be the bigger person and keep those lines of communication open. You can go to the stepdaughter's party, whatever party I forget what kind of party it was. It was like a shower, yeah. You can send a gift on his birthday and say, "I miss you," and you know, sometime it'd be great to reconnect. You can keep them open without seeming so demanding and insecure and controlling yourself, particularly if you you want to contrast your not controlling, not demanding self with, you know, if if the problem is the new wife with a controlling, demanding, insecure new wife. Here's what she needs to do. She needs to model the kind of family values that she wants to have from him. And that means, and sometimes like, especially when there's a, like a shower, showers are very loaded. um, They're very, very loaded um, events for people. So you Why is like that? I don't get well it's all it it tend, there's gifts it's all women it's it gets competitive and so in this case 
she should just almost practice how she's going to behave, how she's going to react, and really, really model the kind of behavior that she wants. Mm-hmm. Be the bigger person. Be the adult. Yeah. Okay. Let's take another one. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old straight female from California, and I have a question about orgies at Burning Man. So last summer was my first time going to Burning Man, and I heard about the Orgy Dome, and I was very intrigued, but way too scared to go. And this year I'm going back, and I really want to act on my Orgy fantasy, especially at Burning Man, but I have like no idea what to do or what to expect or anything at all. Like, do I just walk in the dome and get naked, or do I just sit there and wait for someone to talk to me, or what? I just imagine myself walking in and having absolutely no fucking clue what to do. I don't have a partner, so it would just be me. What's a single burner lady supposed to do at the Orgy Dome? So, Amy, when you go to Burning Man, do you go to the Orgy Dome? Well, here's the thing. I I feel like that call was placed by young Amy. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, what? I was kidding. Really? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you why. Because... If I was going to go like the Orgy Dome, I would behave just like she is. Like, I want to go to Orgy Dome, but I really don't know what the rules are. And so if you could tell me what they are, then I'll do it right. You know? (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was darling. I love young Amy voice. You should do a podcast of your own where it's just you and young Amy giving (laughs) advice. It would be hysterical. No, I thought she was absolutely adorable and happens to be the age of most of my daughters who I, I, I can't imagine them going to this. Um, orgy Dome. I can imagine. Say, it, say I the even, words, Orgy Dome. Or, I, I can't even get there. Anyway, I thought she was adorable. Here's my idea for her. She, it's all about fantasy. She has a fantasy of doing this. So I think that young Amy should, like, do it up. She's the virginal first-timer at Orgy Dome. She should show up in a, you know, like a Catholic, Catholic school, school girl. girl. Yes, yes. And just, and then, and like with the little necktie that they wear and the knee socks and the whole thing. And she should show up there and just sort of enter and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And like, she can like really, really live out her own, like she can really, she has a part to play here. She should do it. I think she should do it too. And, I, and you know, when people think about orgy, I've never been to Burning Man. Sand in my crack is not my thing. And I've never been to Burning Man. But I have, you know, gone to swingers clubs. I've gone to heterosexual sex parties. And Orgy Dome is a straight sex environment, I believe, at Burning Man or pr- predominantly straight. And a lot of people fear that this is going to be a bad environment for women or women will be coerced. Or or women will be under pressure or they'll be preyed upon. And when you actually go to these environments, you quickly realize that, oh, no, 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 no. These environments live or die by how secure and comfortable women feel in them. If they're uncomfortable places for women, all the women leave and the guys are very sad. All the straight guys are very sad. So your expectation going in – you know, you need to go in confident that there will be women there at an organized event like Orgy Dome at Burning Man that – you know, usually there are bouncers and there are people in charge. And if you have a problem with somebody who's harassing you, point that person out and they will be out of there. They will be removed if they're making women feel uncomfortable. But I've never been to Burning Man. I've never been to Orgy Dome. Um, I, my advice would play – I agree with you. Play up the innocence because that's your real story. That's who you are. You are that's a naif in this environment. You're new to it. Why not make that – your thing, but get an orgy buddy to go with you. Get another knave. Get somebody who's been there before. Even just hanging out at hanging out at Burning Man, 
You'll find you'll meet people who've already been to Burning Dome and say, "Oh my God, I'm so curious. I wanted to go. Will you right. take me? Because I'm afraid to just walk in there by myself." Okay, so Dan, now I'm spitballing. I'm spitballing here. So, what she needs is like, um, like a like a field hockey team. Like <laughs> we're going with, like with the uniforms and the little sticks, and it'd be awesome. It would be if she had sort of a defense. <laughs> yeah. Defense is a good offense. Um, Amy Dickinson, read her column. Ask Amy. It's a Syndicated by the Chicago Tribune, it's in how many millions of papers? Oh, a bunch. Well, there aren't that many left, right? I'm, I'm in a couple hundred. Tell me about it. I'm in about seventy-five. But you know, but I, I write about fist fucking, and I couldn't write about fist fucking in daily no. newspapers. No. Do you ever get? I, I get questions about weddings and showers, and I, every time I read one of those, I'm like, "This is for Amy, or this is for Peter. How did this get into my mail?" Do you ever get questions about fist fucking in orgy domes and think somebody sent me Dan's letters today? Did you know what's funny, Dan? Very, very, very seldom. Very seldom. Once in a while, I'll get like a fetish letter, but it's, you know, mild fetish stuff, which I can probably handle. But no, very seldom. Amy Dickinson, Ask Amy. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today, Amy. It was really fun. Same here, Dan. Thanks. Hi, Dan. I am a 35-year-old single mom of a 10-year-old boy. And um, while I've been pretty open with him and honest about all things sex, it's been mainly the sort of biological side of things rather than sexuality. And I feel as he's growing older, I need to broach that and have no idea how to do it. Um, One of my biggest fears has to do with online porn and what's out there and shape and that, you know, sort of shaping his sexuality in a negative way. I don't know if I need to give guidelines eventually. I mean, for right now, we have the top family safety precautions, so he's not accessing anything I don't know about, but I know at some point he's going to get smarter than I am about these things, and I know there's a lot of stuff out there that I'm not cool with, and, um, you know, the revenge porn stuff and the immature, not really knowing they're being filmed for wide distribution and misogyny and, you know, every girlfriend must be a porn star because that's all I've seen online. I'm so nervous about how to raise a boy in the digital age. Um, So, you know, any suggestions as a father of a teenager you're a couple of years ahead of me, so that would be great. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Alice Drager is a faculty member of the Medical Humanities and Bioethics Program at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. You can read her excellent writing on sex, sexuality, uh, intersex issues, all sorts of stuff at The Atlantic and Pacific Standard, where she had a piece recently that went viral calling on parents to talk not just about the biological side of sex, as you did, caller, with your child, but also the pleasure side. Thanks for jumping on the phone, Alice. Thanks for having me. So why is it important for parents to talk about pleasure when they talk to their kids about sex? Kids want to know why adults spend so much time thinking about sex. And if we don't tell them that it's because of pleasure, then they get really confused. They know, as you discovered with your own son, that if they think sex is only for making babies, they're baffled as to why we're so interested in sex. 
So it's really important that they know that the reality of sex is that most of the time we're having it, we're doing it for pleasure. Or in your case, all the time you're having it, you're doing it for pleasure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we gay people, we invented sex for pleasure. Um, Yeah, it was a moment with my son one day where, you know, I thought we had totally covered the sex talk, you know, where babies come from. Um, And yet one day my son came down and looked at me in the kitchen, jumped up on the counter, sat on the counter and kind of narrowed his eyes and said, you and daddy have sex for no reason. Two men can't make a baby. And I was like, oh, my God, I left me. I left 99.99999% of the sex that people have out of the sex conversation with my own son, which is sex for pleasure. People have one or two children, or if you're the Duggars, 22 children or whatever it is. But they have a lot of sex, a lot more sex than children. So what's the point? The point is almost always pleasure, and we leave that out. Yeah, and you wrote about that story in American Savage, and I just loved it because I thought, oh, good, I made the same mistake as Dan <laughs> Savage, so I'm doing okay. So, so why is pleasure so hard to talk about when we talk with our kids about sex? I think part of it is that um, when we talk with children about sex, we're trying so hard as parents to be protective of them. And talking about the pleasurable aspects of sex feels like encouraging them to do stuff that we don't feel like they're ready for, especially if they're little, they're not ready for that stuff. So I think it's hard for us to feel protective and to also be honest about sex. But that said, I think one of the ways to be protective is to have that frank conversation as you did with your son, as I did with my son, and tell him the truth that the reason people are so interested in sex, the reason we constantly see sex all over our culture, the reason why this kind of stuff is all around us is because, in fact, it is pleasurable. It's the same reason why food advertisements are all around us and vacation advertisements are all around us because we're really into pleasure. Now, one of the sort of things that that probably wouldn't occur to most parents, and you're right, like people will leave the pleasure out because they're trying to protect their kids. They're afraid if they tell their kids people have sex mostly for pleasure, mostly because it feels good, that their kids will run out and try to have sex. Rest assured that your 10-year-old or you know, however old your kid is when you're having these age-appropriate conversations about pleasure and sex isn't interested in sex, doesn't get it, doesn't want it, will be squicked out still. It's when puberty kicks in and everything that you need to uh, think about that. But leaving pleasure out is actually the opposite of protecting your kids. There's this very famous study out of the UK that found that all these kids who were sexually active, uh, that many of them were having sex that was unpleasurable, sex that didn't feel good, sex that caused them pain, and they didn't realize that there was something wrong with that because no one had ever told them that sex was supposed to feel good. And this is particularly a problem for young girls. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons why it's a good idea when you're having this sex is for pleasure conversation to talk about masturbation. So kids by the age of 10, many of them are at that point fondling themselves. Some of them are actively masturbating. And it's worth talking about that and talking about the fact that that's normal and that feeling ourselves, feeling our genitals and feeling pleasure out of that is normal and that that's something a lot of us do before we become sexual with other people. And it's a perfectly normal, perfectly safe thing to do if you do it in safe practices. So I think having that conversation is important, but it's also important when you're having the sexes for pleasure conversation to have the pedophilia protection conversation, which is talking with children about how adults should not be participating in sexual acts with children and that if at any point you feel like you're having a sexual encounter with somebody that makes you uncomfortable, whether you're a child or a teenager or an adult, you need to withdraw from that and get yourself out of that situation because sex is supposed to feel good. And if it's not feeling good, then it's not a good situation for either of you. Okay, so the caller whose question we just played She needs to have a conversation with her son about porn. And this is an unavoidable conversation. Porn, technology, the internet, um, what your kid is going to be exposed to is vast and there's vastly more of it at their fingertips than there used to be. So what do you think that parents need to say, this parent in particular, needs to say to her 10-year-old kid in the next couple of years about online pornography and some of what he's going to see out there? 
Well, first she needs to have the conversation about healthy sexuality, and I'm not saying that porn is unhealthy, but she needs to first have a conversation about sexuality because she admits she's talked to him about biological sex in terms of males being different from females, but she hasn't had a conversation with him about what intercourse is, how intercourse works for straight people, how it works for gay people. So she needs to start having those conversations. And those, I recommend, be descriptive conversations that are fairly simple at the level the child can understand it, but be honest, be clear about what happens, and just try to keep a straight face, try not to turn red. I once turned bright red when I was describing intercourse to my son, and he asked me, why are you turning bright red? And I said, <laughs> because adults have trouble talking about this because sex is a very intense experience. And so it's hard for me to talk with you about it because it's really intense. And I said, so just bear with me while I get through this. And he was great. He was very patient with me. He was five years old at the time, and he'd asked me about wh- how sexual intercourse works. And so I had to explain it. You know, so I think that's where to start is have that conversation before having the conversation about pornography. One of the things I always tell parents is not to think of it as a conversation that you're having with your child because for most – in most cases, it's going to be a monologue. You have to figure out what it is that your kid needs to know, what you want to impart, the thing – you know, the, the conversation about pedophilia or pedophiles or, or sexual abuse, the, you know, what they need to know about sexual intercourse, sexual pleasure, the risks, pornography, whatever it is that you think they really need to know – you know, the, it was the case with my kid. He didn't want to hear it, but I knew he needed to know about birth control and some other issues. So I said, you know what? You have to listen to this. I know you're saying you don't need to know. I know you're saying you know this already, but I don't know that you need, you know, and I don't know for sure that you already know this. So I'm going to say it and stop arguing with me and then it'll be over quicker. And then I said it. And, you know, sometimes what I hear from parents is I tried to have a conversation with my kid about sex and my kid shut it down and you need to make sure they understand it's not an opt out situation. That does happen, and one of the things that you can do is enlist a trusted friend or family member to then have the conversation, because sometimes it's really hard to talk with that stuff about your own parents, but for example, in our family, we have godless parents to our son. We figured he shouldn't be cheated just because we're atheists, so we have four (laughs) sets of godless parents for him, and he knows he can go to any of them and talk with them, and they do occasionally check in and say, you know, you're at the age where maybe you want to talk about X, Y, or Z, do you want to have that conversation? And he does have that conversation with some of them. These are people we trust to have sensible, calm conversations with them. And sometimes it's less intense than having to talk to your mother about this stuff or your father about this stuff. So I think you have to just sort of take it descriptively, take it as calmly as possible, and recognize that if you're turning bright red, that you should just acknowledge that and name that. And then what's really important with children always with intense conversations is the next day say, yesterday we talked about this and we talked about this and this and this, and I left out this. Is there anything you wanted to talk about? And a lot of times kids will have the follow-up conversation more easily than they'll have the first conversation. Oh, that's a good so the point. next day conversation is really important. The only thing I would add to the godless parents paradigm uh, is something my mom did, which I thought was really uh, smart. She identified those people in our lives, like you can ask your aunts this, these questions if you, you can go to the, this person. And she said, my deal with them is that you can talk to them about anything uh, and they're not allowed to tell us about it. That's right. They're not going to report back to HQ about what you asked them about. And she also identified people who weren't in our lives every day. She identified people we saw occasionally. So if we had a really embarrassing question, we knew we could ask it, and then we wouldn't have to look at that person for months. That's very cool. And you you know, you know, can also let those people know if they want to ask, is it okay if I tell your parents we had this conversation? They can ask the child, and the child can say no or say yes. Because sometimes the kids want you to know you've had the conversation, so you don't bring it up again, right? <laughs> <laughs> But so then we, we need to talk about, so what should this mother do with regard to talking about pornography? And I think the same basic approach is in order, which is trying to keep it at the descriptive level and try as much as possible to sort of think about protection as a sensible approach as opposed to sort of a hysterical approach. 
So I think having the conversation as we have with our son that when you're looking stuff up online or you're with your friends, sometimes you're going to come across pornography. And we describe what that is. That's images of people who are usually naked having sex with each other or having sex themselves masturbating. And some of that stuff is going to be intriguing and interesting and some of it's going to be uncomfortable. And you need to gauge for yourself how you feel about these things and walk away if you're not feeling ready. But the other thing we talk with him about is that sometimes in pornography, the people who are involved did not want to participate. And so if you're viewing that kind of pornography, we have that sense, that's not really a positive view of sexuality. And we walk away from that kind of pornography. And we, we let them know that we look at pornography and that we walk away from pornography that we think is abusive, just like we walk away from sex that's abusive. That's really smart. I also think, you know, there is porn out there, revenge porn, uh, she cites, yes. certain kinds of amateur porn. There's gonzo and extreme porn. And I, I, I did this, you know, with, with, with my son about television. Like when he was a little kid, we would sit and watch TV and, you know, I wanted to immunize him against the lure of television. And so I would say, are you having fun while we're watching TV? And he would say, yeah. And I would say, yeah, we're sort of having fun. We're having vicarious fun. They're having fun. They're doing things. Nobody on TV is ever watching TV, right? And we're sort of vicariously enjoying their experiences, but it's kind of fake fun we're having right now. And that's fine. Like sometimes you want to relax and just let somebody else have fun for you and watch them have fun. Just, but it's fake fun. And I heard him later say to a friend who came over to play who wanted to watch TV, no, I don't want to have fake fun. Let's have some real fun. Let's go do something. <laughs> and that was one of my proudest moments as a parent. That's I, very cool. And I kind of took the same approach with pornography where I wanted to get in between him and it uh, in his head, uh, not in reality in any way. And just said, you know, there's porn out there that's made for people who are angry. There's porn out there that's made for people who can't have, who don't have relationships, who aren't successful, who can't connect with people, who can't get anyone to have sex with them. And they want to see the things that they desire, but then it, they want those things to be punished at the same time for rejecting yeah. them. And so there's a lot of porn that mixes desire and anger together. And it's meeting a certain need for a certain kind of person, but you're not that kind of person. And you don't want to be right. that kind of person because people who mix up desire and that kind of toxic anger, they don't have relationships and they don't mm -hmm. tend to be very happy. So when you come across that porn, just remember who that was made for. Right. And I think that's but, really important to say because if, if you can immunize your kid just psychically a little bit, if you can make them critical viewers of the gonzo, revenge, awful porn that they are inevitably going to see at some point, they'll experience it differently. I think that's right. And, you know, well, because I knew I was going to have this conversation with you, my husband and I were like, oh, maybe it's time we had that conversation with the kid again. So we did the other day. <laughs> and part of what that led to that was really interesting, I mean, I actually said to him, you know, so Dan Savage is calling me to talk about this, so I better talk with you about it. So I'm not a hypocrite. <laughs> so my husband and I had the conversation with him. And one of the things that emerged from that conversation about talking about that kind of porn, about revenge porn, was talking about consent. And so we end up leading into a conversation about how important it is, especially for his generation, to Absolutely. make sure that he's getting, as a boy especially, to make sure he's getting consent, make sure consent is expressed multiple times. And then we talked about how the best kind of sex we've both ever experienced is the kind when both of us are really into it. And that that's what consent is, people being really engaged, really into it. And that that's the kind of pornography that excites most people is the kind where the people involved in it are really excited to be there, that they're really having a good time. So we tried to talk about pornography in conjunction with consent. It seemed to kind of work. I think it makes sense for kids to think about participation as being voluntary and enjoyable and pleasurable, and that that's what makes sex the best. You know, as a parent of a teenage boy yourself, I'm the parent of a teenage boy. The caller will be the parent of a teenage boy shortly. 
there is this increased awareness about rape on college campuses, about the sexual abuse of, of young women. And the one thing that can be difficult to talk about, and, and it feels in some way as if you are minimizing you know, the real victims, which of course are girls and women who are sexually violated, victims of sexual assault, is I worry for my son. I, I impress upon him at all times the importance of consent, that it be active, I'm that totally it be explicit, because I don't want him to blunder into a situation where it was blurry or it was vague or one person thought it was okay and the other person didn't because the cultural sort of bias rightly is shifting to, you know, away from just the default exoneration of all boys in that situation. And he mm-hmm. can't, you know, he's not going to be able to get away with shit that boys historically have gotten away with, and nor should he be able to get away with it. But I need to, as a parent of a teenage boy, make sure that he understands that because he gets contrary messages about how do you get into girls' pants from television, from films, from movies, from the culture, right? That boys are right. supposed to wheedle and plead and sex isn't something girls are necessarily interested in. You'll never get it unless you not force it, but really manipulate pressure, beg. And it can't be like that anymore. We can't keep sending that message to our boys. And when we want to make the world safer for girls, but safer for the boys too, at the same time, oh, we I'm have totally to make it safer you. for I mean, the boys. I absolutely worry about that. And my husband reminded me, I was trying to get my kid a cell phone with absolutely no camera on it because I, uh. I don't want him getting stuck in the situation where somebody puts a photograph on his phone that jeopardizes his well-being and his safety in terms of him getting accused of something. I'm even more so paranoid because I, I, tell, I tell my son, you don't want to be in the frame when someone else is taking a photograph. Oh, absolutely. If something's going down and you're a passive observer and you're just in the frame and and you did nothing and and, and then you objected and then you left, but that picture goes viral and you're in it somehow, like, holy crap, you're guilty too. Those fears keep me awake at night, believe me, the fears of of them getting caught in these situations. So one of the things we talked with our son the other day about when we were talking about all this was I, I mentioned to him that, you know, we've been together 20 years, my husband and I, and we still check in with each other on consent. I mean, it sounds funny to say, but there'll still be times where one of us will sense that the other one's maybe not that into it, and we'll pause and we'll say, do you want to do this? Do you feel like doing this right now? And my son looked sort of surprised, and I said, you know, Having a good relationship means not just assuming all the time that you know what the other person is thinking, but checking in now and then. And that's what some of what we still do, even 20 years in. That's not to say every time we have a consent conversation. <laughs> you know, I agree with you that we have a mutual, I know you do with your husband, that, you know, there's an agreement that if you're in bed together and one of you rolls over and starts feeling up the other, that that's not a violation. You didn't need to get consent in advance. I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of grief for that. I, I wrote a column where I called that, you know, in our long-term relationship, in any long-term relationship, I believe a state of implied consent exists that can be it can be withdrawn it can be withdrawn at any moment but you know i can roll over on terry in a way uh that i couldn't roll over on someone at the gym that i didn't know and it would be assault at the gym but it's tuesday at our house I actually, I mean, my husband's going to kill me for telling you this, but I remember after reading that column by you, I remember one morning I rolled over, felt him up and said, Dan Savage says, I don't need your consent. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, and Dan Savage is right again. (laughs) I love your husband. Yeah. So I think, I think having those conversations with kids about what consent looks like in different relationships is really key and focusing a lot. Again, there's one of the places where we focus on sex as pleasure and consent is really critical to understanding sex as pleasurable, right? Finally, to, to, to reassure this parent, there's a lot of bad research out there, I think, that's just very sex negative, very porn negative. 
that seeks, I think, to alarm people about pornography. Uh, is there a legitimate reason for people to be concerned about their children being exposed to pornography? Is there research that shows that teenage boys looking at pornography are being turned into sex monsters or damaged or made uh, incapable of having adult relationships? So I tried doing some research on this, and let me just tell you that if you try looking up pornography in teenagers, you don't get what you're looking for if you're me. (laughs) (laughs) And God forbid you try looking up children and pornography, because then you're going to get in some even more dangerous spot. But I did do some research on this, and there's actually a good piece from a couple years ago by Stephanie Pappas at Live Science, and she actually quotes um, your good friend Rick Santorum as being one of these people who's convinced that pornography changes your brain in negative ways and causes you to become a sex pervert. In fact, there's no evidence that we have that shows um, that viewing of pornography actually changes your brain in any way, changes your orientation, changes your fetish interests, changes your pleasure interests. What we do know is that there's disputable evidence in both directions with regard to whether or not availability of pornography increases or lowers rates of assault on women. Some studies say it increases some studies say it actually decreases, with the theory being that men actually have a release. So what I would say is that we don't have any evidence that, in fact, pornography changes how children think. It might, but we don't find any evidence for that. And that I think we're learning more and more that sexual orientation gets set very early, if not prior to birth for most people, and that the kinds of interests that we develop in terms of sexuality is so unpredictable that it's probably more likely to that if you have a cleaning lady wearing pink rubber gloves and she happens to bend over and wink at your son, that that's maybe going to have an effect on him and maybe not going to have an effect on him. And we absolutely don't know. So I don't think that we have to run around terrified that pornography is, in fact, going to harm all of our children. That said, I think it's perfectly reasonable as a parent to try to make sure that children are not overexposed to sex before they're ready to manage it. Alice Drager is a faculty member of the Medical Humanities and Bioethics Program at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Read her stuff at The Atlantic and Pacific Standard. Uh, Go to Amazon, look up her books. They're really terrific. Alice, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Thanks, Jan. Hi, I am a 41-year-old straight woman, and I recently reconnected with a former boyfriend. I had my first threesome with him when I was 24. Um, We decided, we've been in contact, we decided to have another threesome, and I found myself wondering if he would truly be okay with it, because he previously had issues when we were intimate. I should mention I consider myself to be a very kinky girl, and even when I was 24, I was very kinky. Um, This was part of what he was attracted to. However, he's been the person to initiate the threesomes at times. The first threesome we had was with his best friend, and this was actually one of the reasons I ended up breaking up with him. I felt like I was used, and it wasn't really about me, and um, at some point, I also wondered if I was too much for him. Last weekend, when we decided to have this threesome, we met a guy, we talked to him, we had everything planned out from what I would wear, makeup, etc., how I would greet him at the door, all of it. So as it started to get closer to the day, I wondered if he would back out. I tried to make sure that he was in a good place about what was going to happen, and I kept reassuring him, and I told him that we didn't have to do it, and I also told him that what my feelings were for him, and that anything that happened with this other guy would be just sexual. So the day arrives, and I show up at the hotel we picked out, and I dressed the way he wanted, my makeup was the way he wanted, everything seemed perfect. The guy shows up, and I greet him at the door just as we discussed for the past two weeks. Everything's going great. I'm into the guy. The guy's into me. It's perfect. My old boyfriend is getting what he wanted, or so I thought. 
And at some point I realized, I think he kind of felt intimidated by the guy. As it started to wrap up, he pretty much kicked the guy out of the hotel suite and suggested that I take a shower. I walked into the back part of the suite, and um, when I came back to where he was at, he was kneeling and praying. And this is the issue that we had before. We would have sex, and then he would get all weirded out about it, and he would start praying. So I tiptoe out of the room, and I go and take a shower. When I get back to where he was at, I sat down and I talked to him, and at that point, he asked me what my relationship was with God. And then he asked me if we could pray together. Now, I think I have a pretty good relationship with God, but I wasn't really expecting a prayer session after what we had just done. Um, He also refused to kiss me on the mouth after I was with this guy and said he would kiss me on the top of my head or my cheek. And he did this about 20 times. At one point, he even suggested that I drink with Crown and Coke because that's what we were drinking. Um, I even brushed my teeth several times to, you know, make it feel clean for him. Now, I really like this guy. I think he's sweet, but I don't know if I can handle the guilt associated with feeling like I've corrupted him. And I kind of feel like that girl that just sucked it anyway. So my question is, is should I completely part ways with this guy since he's not really sure what he wants? Yes, you should completely part ways with this crazy conflicted, game-playing, slut-shaming bag of shit. Yes, of course. You know what you have to do. You should have looked at him when he wouldn't kiss you on the lips and said, well, you can kiss me on the lips or I can punch you on yours. I did this with and for you and I'm happy about it and you're treating me like I'm some fucking diseased Jezebel? Fuck you. You should have decked him. You should have picked up a lamp off the side table in that hotel room and smacked him upside his fool fucking head. All metaphorically, all intimations of violence are metaphor. When I say slap someone upside the head, I don't mean actually slap them when they're talking about a lamp or a punch in the mouth. I mean using your words, say something that might bring them to their senses. Say something that hits them like a fist, but don't hit them with your fists, of course. Yeah, you know what to do. You know this is bullshit. You know you need to get the fuck away from this guy. You say you like him. You say he's nice, but you you know that this is over and you're done. And this is not a new thing with him. You say that there have been similar prayer meeting, breakdown, panic attack, bullshit sessions in the past, and yet you went back? You're better than this, and you know better than this. I think this is one of those calls where somebody knows what needs to be done, and they're already doing it. I bet you've already dumped him. You just need to vent. You need to share. This is getting something off your chest in the form of a question, and maybe you would do this with friends, like, oh my god, listen to what happened to me. What should I do? And you know what needs to be done. You just want to tell. Because, you know, a lived experience without any witnesses save that guy. You need confirmation. You want somebody to look at you and go, yeah, that was fucked up. Girl, every listener right now is going, yeah, that is fucked up. Mission accomplished. And thanks for sharing, man. And honestly, that's when we would have probably aired without you twisting it into the form of a question at the end to justify it appearing on an advice show. Anybody wants to call in with some really fucked up, crazy ass shit that happened to them just because they need to share, feel free. You can share without putting a question mark at the end. And if it's really good and really crazy, we'll probably air it. Hi, Dan. I've got a, another take on that woman who said she couldn't understand why her married the, the married dudes kept jumping on her. Um, I had a friend like that once, 
And when she said the same thing to me, she said, I'd be hanging out with this guy and he'd be great. And all of a sudden he'd be on top of me. And I thought, well, that's a little odd. And then I saw her in action. And she, she is the biggest flirt in the world. And she doesn't know she's doing it. She basically does everything you're supposed to do to let a guy know you're interested. She would lean toward him. She'd bat her eyelashes. She'd, you know, um, everything. He, she, she'd hang on every word. When she used to hang out with me and my husband, she would plunk herself down between the two of us, between me and him, and sort of turn her back to me and direct all of her comments to him and laugh at him and be, you know, she'd be flirting with him. And she'd have no idea she was doing it. This is just second nature to her. This is just the kind of person that she was. And it could be that your caller's the same way. She could be sending out, I'm available, I love you, I think you're adorable vibes without even knowing she was doing it, because my friend certainly didn't. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the woman who called your show with the at-rest-fuck-me face, as she called it. Um, I have to agree with you that, in general, she is doing absolutely nothing wrong except for one thing. She says she is bold, confident, and strong. She should boldly, confidently, and strongly tell these assholes to fuck off, and that is not how you treat your friends. That's not how you treat someone who's one of the guys. Um, especially if you're straight. And uh, I, I, my heart goes out to her. My girlfriend is kind of the same way. Lots of people hit on her. Lots of people give her unwanted advances, and she never seems to understand why. And she has learned to very boldly tell them to fuck off, and uh, it seems to have worked. I have had this problem forever, but I've come up with some solutions that I might I think might be helpful to her. One of them is to have more female friends and more gay male friends that you spend more of your time with. But if you do have male friends, um, I also learned how to read other people's body language and respond in a way that discourages unwanted advances. So I kind of have like a heads up before something will happen because I can kind of see what's going to happen before it does. And last, I don't feel bad for calling them out on inappropriate behavior because they're making me uncomfortable and there's no reason that that is acceptable. So I'm going to call them out and they need to friggin' stop. And if that embarrasses them, oh well, they embarrassed me. So, lady power. And we're going to leave it there. Thank you as always to all you wonderful Magnum subscribers. We appreciate your support. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Amy Dickinson on Twitter at AskingAmy. And follow Alice Dreger on Twitter at Alice Dreger, D-R-E-G-E-R. And Hump, Seattle's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival, continues its world tour going international now. Uh, Hump is coming to Vancouver, British Columbia, July 4th and 5th at the Rio Theater, and then heading to Toronto on July 12th to the Bloor Cinema. For information about the Hump Tour, go to humptour.com for uh, those dates and others. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.